for tonight. We're kind of continuing on with the biblical authority. Uh, you know, last week we talked a lot about um, who is God and what is God, and we talked about the archaeological evidence that supports the uh, certainly the scriptures and definitely the New Testament. And we're going to continue on with that um, that idea here with the biblical authority. And tonight we're going to look a lot of, at historical reliability, um, and that's just a great thing about the Christian faith. Is man, it's a historical faith. It's a historical faith. And the beauty of that is, is the, all the claims that we find in Scripture can be tested because it is a historical faith. We can go back and like when, you know, when it mentions Pontius Pilate, it's like, well, did Pontius Pilate really exist? Well, we can go back and find out that he really did. You know, when you start talking about other belief systems, whether it's New Age or Hinduism or, I mean, these are, you can't prove them wrong or you can't prove them true. It could just be whatever you want it to be. I mean, it's this whole idea of God consciousness and it's, you know, whatever God is to you, then that's, that's your God. And you can't prove that. That's somebody's subjective feelings. But with Christianity, it is a historical faith that we get to live out and it can be tested. And we can look at empirical data to say, yes, this either affirms what the Bible says or it rejects what the Bible says. But that's what we must know, and that's what we must live by, right? We've been at this a long time. Most of us have. And, man, I found the Bible to be true, not in that it just changed my life, but that when we look at the data, it's true. When we look at its claims, it's true. When we look at his promises, it's true. When we look at his prophecies, it's true. And so those are all the things we're going to kind of look at tonight. So let's go ahead and get started. All right, historical reliability. Man, it's a... The most, it's one of the most historically reliable and supported ancient documents. And again, we're talking ancient, so we're talking about things that, you know, a thousand years old or more. And then when we start getting into that ancient idea. And so the New Testament certainly qualifies for that. And so one of the things we're going to look at is this idea of early dating, right? And that means the accounts were written close to the actual events. And so when we look at the, at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look at this here in just a little bit, right? The Gospel of Mark, generally, you know, the scholars say it's written around 50, 55 A.D., right? And so when we look at that, and we're just going to say 50 because it's an easy number for me to work with, and that is, right, Christ was crucified in 33 A.D. Mark's writing his Gospel in 50 A.D. He writes a 17-year time frame. From the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 17 years later, Mark is putting that on paper. Parchment. Not paper. So he's writing that down. Right? Man, when you're talking about something getting close to the event, right? The closer we can get to the event, the more accurate the information is. Right? And again, and we, 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 we know that in our lives today. We know that in our lives today. I mean, if you saw an accident this morning, you would be able to give some, some good data to that. Man, if we ask you about something that happened 17 years ago, I know I was alive 17 years ago, but it gets pretty limited at that point in time. So the closer we get to the event, the more accurate the information that it is. The other aspect is, is man, when we see a writing like Mark that's established around 50 A.D., and he's writing about an event from 33 A.D., man, if there was anybody to refute it, they would still be alive, or most people would still be alive to say, Mark, I was there. That's not what happened. 
right? And that becomes a benefit of that, that, man, if Mark's writing something that's not true, people would be there to challenge that, right? Now, if the book of Mark was written 150 years later, there's several things that we know. One, Mark's not the one who wrote it because he's dead, and all of the people that were alive at that time were dead. So there's nobody to challenge that writing as to whether it was true or false. Early dating is, is of, of great importance. And again, that's eyewitnesses can refute the error. So we'll look at the book of Matthew. It was written to Jewish believers. It was written around 55 to 59 A.D. You got Luke was written to Gentiles, and it was dated A.D. 58 to 60. Mark, that's what we we're talking about. He wrote to Roman and Gentile believers around 50 A.D. to 55. Now, John... Right, he wrote to Christian believers. His is dated around AD 90, and some people take it as early as 85 AD. So his is much later. I mean, we're looking at 50, 55 years later. John is writing the Gospel of John. But with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, man, they're all within that 17 to 20 year, 25 year time frame from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Very close. Again, when we're talking about. For some of you, it's, it's a lifetime. You're not even that old, right? But man, when we're talking about ancient documents, I mean, that's huge. That's huge that we get it that close. And man, I love this. This is not on your thing. If you want it, you probably should take a picture of this. Um, but this is one of the things I like. These are some early citations, prove early dating. We got Clement, and he was around, you know, AD 95. And he cites all of those books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. He cites from all of those books. We have Ignatius, again, right at the beginning of the second century. He cites from all of those books. And then you have Polycarp, again, beginning of the second century. Those are all the books from his writings that are cited. Now, one thing that we know is that when you cite, when you cite a source material, it's already in existence. It's already in existence because you're citing an existing document. You've got all the Gospels except for John by 95 AD. So at the end of the first century, Clement is quoting from those books. They were already in existence and had been circulating for quite some time. They've been circulating for quite some time amongst the churches. And then again, with Ignatius and Polycarp. And so we know that our New Testament writings are early. They are early writings. That's a good thing. Those are good things that we want to have. Again, this is another one of my favorites. This is a comparison of ancient texts. And so we'll start at the top. You see Homer. He wrote the Iliad. Um, he wrote that around 800 B.C., the earliest manuscript that we have on Homer, on the Iliad, is about 400 B.C. And so the next thing, it's a time gap. The time gap is from the time that it was written to the earliest known document that we have. 400. Um, sorry, let me turn this off. It's a 400-year time gap. Again, when we, and for us, it's like, man, that's forever. But when you're talking about an ancient document that's from 800 B.C., 400 years is nothing. It's, it's a blink of the eye. 
And there's slightly over 1,700 manuscripts, fragments, partials that we have of Homer. So we can go through and look at all of those 1,700, and we can compare them one from the other, and we can come up with what the actual text of the Iliad was. It's an idea called textual criticism. We're going to look at that a little bit more. So anyway, so you got Herodotus. He wrote history. His time gap is 1,350 years. There's 109 documents. And you got Sophocles. You got Plato, right? His time gap is 1,300 years. You got 210, right? I don't know any literary professor that's going to sit there and say, you know what? Plato never existed. Nobody does that. We got 200, 210. Go through and you can look at them. We got them, Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, the Demosthenes. But then you look at the Greek New Testament on the bottom. Written between 50 and 100 AD, we have the entire New Testament written in that time frame. Okay? The earliest manuscripts, fragments, and partials that exist is from AD 130. It's a 40-year time gap from the time that the New Testament was written to where we actually have writings on that. We don't have the originals, right? There's none of the, the originals exist on none of these documents, none of them. We don't have the originals, but we have, for the New Testament, over 5,700 copies, fragments, and partials that we can look at that have been circulated that have been out there. And for each one of those, we can compare one to the other, and this is the art of textual criticism, and we can determine what was the original document. What did that original document say? The more manuscripts that you have, the more accurate that you can come up with, the greater your accuracy. The number of manuscripts is huge. Okay, questions? Moving on. Right, extra biblical writers. These are writers that exist and have wrote outside of the New Testament, right? So they're not, they may or may not be Christians, but they certainly don't have any writings within the New Testament. Most of them are historians. We're going to look at three of them tonight. I think there's 11 that we have that refer back to the New Testament. I might be off on that a little bit. But the first one is Josephus, he was a Jewish historian born A.D. 37, and he writes of this man called Christ. Okay? This is what he says. Festus was now dead, and Albius was but upon the raid, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. When he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So what does Josephus say that the Bible confirms. Right? There's this guy, Jesus. Now, part of that is, is, man, there were a lot of people named Jesus during those days. Right? It's just like Bob and Mark and Mary. And, I mean, there's a lot of people have those names. So there, and there was a lot of people that had named Jesus. But here he says, Jesus who was called Christ. Not a lot of those Jesuses were called Christ. Very few. But then he goes on and he says, man, is, he had a brother named James. Does the New Testament confirm that? Well, it does. He is just writing what the New Testament confirms. He's a historian. He is just writing what he has discovered to be true. 
doesn't say he agrees with it. He's not saying that he agrees that Christ is the Messiah. He's just reporting what he's found to be true. Not about the person, but what was said about the person. And so we know, looking at the New Testament, that's true. He is writing accurately. And so he confirms what the New Testament says about Jesus, about his brother, James. Half-brother, actually. But So then you got Tacitus, a Roman historian. He was a senator. He was born around 56 AD. And this is what he writes. He says, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices whom they crowd, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the procreator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. And again, this guy is a historian. He's a political guy. He's well known. And this is what he writes. Jesus, who's called Christus, he doesn't say Jesus calls him Christus. He's got his followers are called Christians, right? We learn they were first at Antioch. They were called Christians. He was sentenced by Pontius Pilate to death. Again, that's what, that's what the New Testament tells us. We know that's true. Tacitus comes along and says, yep, that's what's reported. That's what's reported. And then we'll look at one more, Pliny the Younger. He was born in AD 61. He was the governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, which I think is modern-day Turkey. And he says, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day. Of course, he's talking about these Christians. Uh, on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang an anthem to Christ as God, and they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deeds. So he's talking about these crazy Christians. Man, they get up before the sun. They come together, and they're worshiping this Christ as deity, as God. Again, Pliny's not saying, oh, yeah, he's God. That's not what's being said here. He's just reporting what's happening. And that's what the scriptures tell us. So we have these extra biblical writings that confirm what we read in the Bible, what we know to be true in the Bible. They're just affirming that idea. Okay? So historical reliability. The historical reliability of the New Testament, it cannot be credibly refuted. It can't. You can't deny that Pontius Pilate really existed. You can't deny that Jesus was a real person, right? When people start talking about he's a myth, clearly the first thing you know is they know nothing what they're talking about. Because I've, I've spoken with atheists, and they'll say, look, I believe Jesus really existed. They don't have a problem with that. They have a problem that that he's God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he's the only way to heaven. Okay, I got that. They don't refute that he was a real historical figure. Okay? It's reliable, the New Testament. So some common objections that we'll find to the Bible. Uh, there's many, but these are the three we're going to look at tonight, and we'll talk about them a little bit. First, the Bible was written by man. It's a human creation, not divine. The Bible's been corrupted over time. And the Bible's incomplete, important books have been left out. And so we're going to look at each one of those, but the question is, is how would you answer these objections? Can you answer them? If you can, great. If you can't, by the end of tonight, you will be able to. Okay? That's the good news. So, first one, written by men. Right? This objection is usually given to cast doubt on God's existence, not man's ability. It should have been capital G. Um, fulfilled prophecy is one proof of divine authorship. 
one proof. And that's what we're going to take a few minutes and look at. Man, the Bible contains over 2,500 prophecies. About 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to the letter. I don't know about you. Man, if God can get 2,000 right, that remaining 500, man, that's just dropping the bucket. I'm good with it. There's 300 prophecies concerning Christ, or approximately, of which Christ would have no control over many of them, like his, his birthplace, his time of birth, his, his death, um, all of these things. So 300 of them concern Christ. Messianic prophecies concerning his birthplace, his manner of death, his resurrection were made 400 to 800 years prior to the events happening. Prior to the events happening. Look. You know, every once in a while, I don't know how often it comes up, right? There's this guy, Nostradamus, right? Oh, man, he's predicted the future. He's got all, oh, he's just, he predicted that this was going to happen. But when you go back and you read his predictions, you're like, oh, there, there's going to be a war in a couple hundred years. And you're like, stop. Just stop that. We could all do that, right? When has there not been a war going on? Right? When has it not been going on? Messianic prophecies, 400 years. Men cannot do that. Only a sovereign God who's in control of all events can do that. So the odds of one man, and now we're back to these odds, right? These numbers of actually fulfilling just 16 of these prophecies, not 300, just 16 of them, is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. That's what it is. I don't even know what it is, but it's that. Right? accidentally happening it's not going to it's not going to happen by accident only by the sovereignty of god is that going to happen it's virtually impossible so we're going to look at five messianic birth prophecies okay first one is genesis 3:15 the seed of the woman right and that's when you get into the curse and satan is be crushed his heel will be bruised and his satan's head will be crushed it's going to be the seed of the woman. Now, we're all in the game. Okay, at this point in time, with this prophecy, we could all be Messiah. Everybody gets to play in this game right now. Okay, he's going to come from a woman. Now, I got it. Today, things are a little sketchy. Okay? Because you can be a man and you can be a birthing person and we got we got that thing going on and so depending on where you're at okay men could be in this but we know better okay next it comes from the line of david second samuel 7 12 through 16 man we have greatly eliminated who he's coming from from the line of david he will come from the line of david so there we've also eliminated Gender is going to be a male. So we've cut out a large portion of the population. He's going to be called the son of God. Again, we keep narrowing this down. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. With each prophecy, man, we're going from it can be anybody, and we just keep narrowing it down till it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Born of a virgin done only jesus 
was born of a virgin. All right? Messiah can only be one person. Fulfilled prophecy is proof of divine authorship. All right? And that's kind of where we started this whole thing out. Fulfilled prophecy is proof of divine authorship. Questions? Moving on. Okay, it was corrupted over time. That was the second one that we had. And so, right, the original manuscripts, I've already talked briefly about this, they no longer exist. We don't have the originals. So how do we know what was on the originals? Again, we touched on this. We determined that. We have over 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts to compare with. And that's this idea of textual criticism. That's how we get back to how do we know what was really on those originals. And we have over 5,700 documents that we can look at and fragments and partials. Um, but we also have the early church fathers. And when I say early church fathers, we're talking like from the late first century, really going up through the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries as that quoted the New Testament over a million times. So for each time they quote a New Testament passage, we can take their quote and we can compare it with the Bible that we have. Is it accurate? It is. Over a million times they quoted it. Let's look at this. This is 36,000 just for these early church fathers. 36,000 times. Justin Martyr, the Gospels, 268 times. Irenaeus, 1,000. Clement of Alexandria, 1,000. Origen, 9,000. Tertullian, 3,800. Hippolytus, 700. Asubius, 3,200. Just on the Gospel alone, these men quoted the Gospel over 19,000 times. And so we can take each one of those quotes and we can bring it back to our New Testament and they match up. The New Testament we have today is the same thing that they were quoting and citing back in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. That's huge. And again, when you just look at the whole New Testament 36,000 times just for those authors. Man. They don't. As far as when it comes to any ancient document, they don't have the originals. Again, because most of the time it's written on parchment, it's written on deer skin that's been tanned, and it, it just doesn't, the more that it's used, like anything else, it's going to wear out. And so there's no, when you deal about ancient faiths and beliefs, there's no originals left. So again, so when you go back and you look at all of those from that one thing that we were looking at, how many copies do we have? The more copies that exist, again, for Homer Iliad, right, I think that was 1,700. Man, that's a lot of copies that we can go back and say, is what we have today of the Iliad, what Homer wrote back in 600 B.C. or whenever he was writing that, 800 B.C. Um, well, we can, we can figure that out through textual criticism. And so it works for the Iliad. It works for the New Testament. So and this is textual criticism. This is what we've been talking about. 655, scholars that examine the manuscript sentence by sentence, word by word. And from that, we're, do we have an accurate copy or not? When a, description, when a discrepancy is noted, it's called a textual variant. Right? And there's four kinds of textual variants. 
if the spelling is unclear, or this, it's their spelling and unclear readings. There's changes that can't be translated into another language. There's just some words or some ideas that don't translate over from one language into our language. Meaningful variants are not plausible, and they incur in questionable man manuscripts. And then the last one is variants that are both plausible and affect the meaning of the text. And so those are the four kind of variants that we'll find within ancient documents. But again, we have to have many copies to even come up and to know that these variants exist. Okay? So, man, the fourth one, right, the variants that are both plausible and affect the meaning of the text, that's the only one that causes serious concern because they are entrusted manuscripts and they affect the meaning of the text. All of the other ones, it could be a copyist error. It, there could be all kinds of reasons why you get there. This is the one that we need to be concerned about. This one right here. Uh, Daryl Bach, he's a New Testament scholar. He says less than 1% of all the textual variants are both meaningful and viable. Less than 1%. And of, all, of the variants that we have, none of them affect core doctrine. None of them affect the core doctrine. They're fully intact, just as Christ meant them to, just as God the Father meant them to. Um, and then variations that exist are almost always minor alterations to the meaning of the text. And that's what we found. This is not in your notes, but uh, certainly our students, man, they'll go off to college and, you know, Bart Ehrman, if you, if you don't know him, don't worry about it. You, you, you know, your life is probably going to be blessed by not knowing that. But anyway, he's a New Testament scholar. I think he's at Duke University is where he's at. Uh, definitely not a friend of Christianity. He would sit there and say, man, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of errors in the New Testament. Hundreds of thousands of errors in the New Testament. And when you think about it, that's, there's more errors than there are words in the New Testament. Literally, there is. There's more errors than there are words. And what he, what he counts as an error is, if there's a spelling error in this one early document, and then you copy that same document and you make the same spelling error, and if that spelling error is made a thousand times, he counts that as a thousand errors. Not one error that's been copied over a thousand times, <clears throat> excuse me, a thousand errors. But if we don't know that, we're just blown away when, oh, oh my gosh, how do I answer that? One error that's been copied a thousand times. That's not a thousand errors. That's not a thousand, it's one error. But that's how Bart Ehrman defines an error. So, right, so we got the telephone game, and that's, we, we have people say, well, you know, it was just passed along. If we start over here with Amanda, and we got a paragraph, and by the time it gets over here, it's not even close, and it may even be in a different language. Right? But that's not how the New Testament was passed along. It was written form, not orally. And so if I was to write a letter, right, and we start over here, Amanda copies the letter, and then she sends the original back this way, and each person copies that letter. Karen's impatient, so she wants to know what it says. So she gets the copy, and she copies the copy. And then you start copying the copy, and the original still making its way down here. And so what happens is, is by the time, so we get copies of copies, and we get copies of the original. 
So we have 50 different copies and one original. Now, we can take the original out of the mix and start looking at all of the copies. And we can say, oh, well, you know what? Here's an error. And this must be Rick's because there's all kinds of spelling errors in here, and grammar is horrible. But we would know that by looking at, at the good copies. And that's what happened. They wrote letters, right? The Gospels were letters that were written, and they were sent out to the other churches and to the other people. And then they would make copies of those, and they would send them along. And that's how we end up with all of these copies. The original's long gone, but we have copies that we can practice this art of science of textual criticism on. Good? All right. So important books have been left out, right? And this is the, I think this is, this is the third one, um, right? The lost gospels. Is that a new term or have, you, have most of us heard this idea of the lost gospels? Right? Okay, so I don't, okay, we don't have to go down that road there. Lost gospels. These are just some of the lost gospels. Thomas, Mary, Peter, Judas, Philip, and there's more. Okay, there's more. So the question is, why were these left out of the Bible? Right? People are just picking and choosing what they wanted to have in the Bible so that they could sit there and oppress and hold authority over other people. Because they left these out. Why were they left out? Man, there's a basic criteria that's used to determine which books were accepted as Scripture. Again, man, they just weren't throwing darts. There was a criteria that each book had to meet before it would be accepted or recognized, let me recognize the scripture. So one, the first one is apostolicity. Did an apostle or close associate of an apostle write the book? Right? Luke was not an apostle, but he was a close associate of Paul. Right? So he writes. So it's either an apostle or a close associate. Next is orthodoxy. Did the books conform to the teachings and theology of the other books accepted as Scripture? So the later books that would come along, they're like, okay, so is the theology matching up with what we have in the earlier books, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Does the theology match up? If you get some aberrant idea in this new writing that doesn't match up with these first three Gospels, it's not Scripture. Because God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't contradict his character. He doesn't contradict his word. God does not do that. And then pedigree. Did the majority of the early churches accept the books as apostolic or orthodox? And so remember the chart with, the, with Clement, Irenaeus, and Polycarp, right? There was probably nine or ten for Clement, the early one. But later on, we get more books that are now accepted, that they're citing from. And so either those books didn't exist for Clement to cite from, or he was unsure about whether they were Scripture. The pedigree, were they accepted as Orthodox by the early church? Okay? And then miracles. Did the author perform miracles to confirm his message? So the lost Gospels, let's look at those. 
They were all written from the second century or later. In other words, 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. What does that do to the apostolicity of it? They're dead. All of the apostles are dead by the time that these lost gospels were written. So it can't be them. So, but it could be a close associate. It could be a close associate because like Polycarp was, was the third person that we looked at on that one chart. Well, Polycarp, the tradition has it, he was discipled by the Apostle John. He could be considered a close associate. Okay? So there's still some ins and outs, and so we look at it and we said, okay, I'm sorry. Nope. Okay. They could not have been written by an apostle, but it could have been a close associate possible. But we know for an apostle for sure they were all dead by then. They're all dead. The theology of the lost gospel does not align with biblical theology. All right? They promote heretical views known as Gnosticism. All right? Gnosticism taught that the material world was evil. Therefore, Jesus was appearing. They would say Jesus only appeared in a body. If he had a physical body, it would have corrupted his ministry. It was just an appearance is what Gnostics would say. Okay, Jesus was a spirit who appeared to be human. Gnostics taught that they had special knowledge that was not available to anybody else. That they have special knowledge. Nobody else does. We're not accept these, again, the lost gospels were not accepted as scripture by the first century church. In fact, they had not even been written by the time of the early church. They had not even been written by the time the first century church got going. Questions on that, on the lost gospels? Why they're not considered scripture? Okay. What about the Apocrypha? Right, we talked a little bit about this last week. These are the Apocrypha, all of the Apocrypha writings. Um, not all of them, sorry, but this is what we find in the Catholic Bible. Okay. Why are these not considered Scripture? Again, last week we talked about they were written in the intertestamental period. Right? That's the 400 years from Malachi up to Matthew. It's called the silent years. In other words, God wasn't speaking to his people. So if God's not speaking to his people during this time that these books were written, yeah, it can't be Scripture. Where are they getting it from? These are great historical books. Please, please hear me on say this. These are great historical books that we can learn a lot about Jewish culture and even Roman culture during that time frame. Right? It was during that time when really the Pharisees and the Sadducees came about. It was during that time period. So there's lots of information that we can gain, and one of it is it's not Scripture. It's not Scripture for these reasons. Right? At the Council of Trent, 1546, this is when the Catholic Church proclaimed the apocryphal books to be inspired word of God. So the 16th century, the Catholic Church, I said, okay, yep, these books are God's word. That's when they said it. So why not the Protestants? Protestants always causing problems. Always. Right? God determined the canonicity by prophetcity through the prophets, through the writers. Right? And again, we're not deciding what books go into the Bible. We're just recognizing the books that are God's word. Yeah, Amy. What's that? 
It, it could be. I, I'm not sure on that one. I, I'd have to look that up. But very well could be. Yeah. It's just not considered an apocryphal book, though. And so, you, again, you, you get into that idea. So if Esther's written in that time, what happens? I, um, I'd, I'd have to research. I could probably say something. I'm just not sure that it's 100% accurate. I can, I'm not sure. Yeah. I know it doesn't mention God. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I accept the That's your homework, Amy. Figure that out and bring that back to us next week, okay? That's how you stop questions right there. <laughs> That's how you stop questions. Like, yeah, you get to research that. Come back and let me know what you find. I want a 30-point PowerPoint, and you can bring that up, and, and we'll cover that next week. Yeah, I'll, I'll need to look into that. Um, okay, so where are we at? Why not the Protestants? God determined it. Um, you know, was the book written by a prophet of God? Talked about that. And this certainly is for the Old Testament. Uh, the apocryphal books, because the apocryphals fall into that Old Testament realm. Um, they were not written by a prophet of God. The books don't even claim to be written by a prophet of God, right? When you go through and you're reading the Old Testament books, you constantly hear, thus saith the Lord, right? And then the prophets do a miracle to say, I'm not kidding, right? God has sent me to do this, or they do the miracle, and then it's thus saith the Lord. But either way, it's a prophet, a miracle comes, and it says, oh, we better pay attention, because he just did something nobody else has done, the prophet, the other thing is Jewish teachers from the first century B.C., really through the first and second century, they don't even consider the apocryphal books to be the Word of God. Right? These are the people that are closest to these writings. And they're like, it's not in the Jewish Bible because they don't consider it to be inspired. Jesus and the New Testament writers never quoted from the apocryphal books. They never quoted it. The early church councils, first century on, did not consider them to be inspired. Early church fathers from the second century on didn't consider them to be inspired. St. Jerome, who's probably considered one of the greatest Catholic theologians that's ever existed, did not consider the Apocrypha to be God's inspired word. Man, this is, this is one of their own. And he's considered one of their greatest theologians, and he's like, mm, I don't think so. There's benefit, there's value to it. It's just not God's word. Yeah, Amy. <laughs> yeah. So the apocrypha, that's the reason why. Amy or Amanda? They would they would uh, certainly not in fifteen hundred at the Council of Trent, they wouldn't have believed that. Um because, and again, I'd probably have to do a little more research, but it, I mean, it, it could be considered God's word just by the blessing of the Pope. The Pope could come along and say, yep, that's God's word, and it becomes God's word. Um, a little sketchy. Maybe a lot. But, yeah, I mean, and so it's just, it becomes a capricious idea at that point in time. And there's, there are some valid reasons that you can go through, and, you know, and I don't just want to just mock it and make it think like it's none of that because, I mean, they have some, some, some sound reasoning as to why they would call it God's Word. So it's, it's just not something that is completely pulling out of the dark. It just doesn't stand up to the criticism. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and again, that, so we want to remember that again, you know, because when, when you end in Malachi, you don't hear nothing about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They don't exist. And then all of a sudden we get into Matthew and man, they're all over the place. I mean, what happened to this? They developed during that time period. Probably 150, 200 years prior to the birth of Christ, you start seeing this, this professional religious thing happening with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that's where they gained all of their authority and all of their power. Um, but you just don't find it in the Old Testament writings. They formed during the 400 silent years. It's during the, and again, so it's fascinating to read that stuff, and you can figure out, oh, this is how we got there. The Apocrypha tells us. So there's benefit to it. It's just not God's inspired word, and that's the reason why we don't have it in the Bible. That's the reason why we don't have it in the Bible. Okay? We're almost there, right? God's authority. God has not only created all things, but all things continue, and their existence by Him and through Him. Man, God is a relational God that communicates with His people. He wants us to know Him, he wants us to know how to live, and he wants to know us what our future looks like, and he's communicated that to us. All right, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And if he gave us his word, and he did, he can keep his word untainted. If he can't protect his word, he's no God at all. He's no God at all. But his word is protected, it's uncorrupted, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and we can trust it. And we can trust it. Questions? Amanda. You could look at the at the um, the ending of it's Mark is what I'm thinking about. The, the last ending of Mark, where you get to that. That one is if you'll if you go back and you look in your Bibles and depending on who there's brackets around it. And then when you look at the footnote, it will tell you it's not found in the earliest known manuscripts. And so that becomes something, and we're like, okay, so how did that get in there? And again, when, when we look at, I write in my Bible all over the place. I mean, so in between, on the side, on the top, and on the bottom. Well, if I just sent you a letter that I got from, from Michael, and I'm just, oh, man, this is good, and I'm just writing stuff in it, and then it's like, oh, well, Ryan wants it, so I send it on to him, and he's like, oh, well, this should be in here because he didn't know that I wrote it. And so he's writing in something that I wrote. Well, that's not Michael's letter. That's just me making comments about it. And so it can get worked into there. Well, that ending of Mark shows up like that. And so when you look through your New Testament, look for brackets around phrases. Look at your footnotes. It'll say, not found in the earliest known manuscripts. In other words, they were in the King James translation, but we found more documents since then. It's like, oh, that's not in the earliest known manuscripts. Yes. Yeah, that would be another one. Yes. And so there's, I don't know how many. I was going to make a guess, and I'm not even going to do that. But there's, there's several of them in there that it's like, oh, okay, there's one. And there's one. But for each one of them, they don't affect a core doctrine. They don't affect a core doctrine. So that would, those are two examples. Okay, anything else? Next week we're going to start, is God evil? Or if God is good, why does evil exist? And that'll be a two-week series on that. Um, if you want to hang around, we're going to do the worldview survey. We good? All right, let's go.
Uh, well, not yet. Anyway, because God is creator and sustainer of all things, his authority extends to all area of life. Man, scripture, reason, understanding, culture, entertainment, senses, emotions, knowledge, government, families. There's no area of creation that does not belong to God. Right? Abraham Kuyper said every square inch of curation belongs to the creator. Nothing. Where we get ourselves in trouble is, man, we talk about the gospel and the gospel, and we got to get people saved, but we leave them saved. We don't disciple them. So we don't reach the culture. We don't change the culture. We don't create flourishing within our culture. It's never less than the gospel. But the Christian life is always more than the gospel. Okay? So, Worldview Survey, I'm going to put a QR code up here. But before we do, let me just, it's not a pass-fail. Okay, we're not going to bring shame on you much. Not much. I want to encourage you. Read the questions carefully. Look, there's, there's three types of people in this room. Okay? People like me, and you're just going to read just enough to get the flavor of the question, and you're going to move on and answer the question. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. And then there's some of you, you're going to obsess over every word. You'll be here 30 minutes still answering questions, Karen. <laughs> you're the one. Karen's going to be the last one in here, okay? And so we got another, right? You're going to obsess over every word. Don't do that. Read it carefully. Answer the question. And then there's those that do just that. They're going to read it, they comprehend it, and they move on and answer the question. Don't be number one or number three, okay? You don't want to be those people, okay? Um, at the end, it may take a little while because there's so many people doing this. It's going to give you a breakdown of how you answered the questions. In other words, it'll show uh, the percent of your questions that you answered from a biblical worldview or from a new spirituality or new age or from postmodernism or from Islam. It's going to break this down and show you. I mean, you could end up 96% Christian, 4% Islam. It depends on how you answer the question. This doesn't <laughs> Rika. Uh, it won't show you the questions. It's just going to give you a breakdown, and you'll be the only one that sees that. You'll be the only one that sees that. Now, if you want other people to see it, screenshot it, and then you can you know, put it on social media. Um, and then when everybody's done, probably tomorrow, I'll pull in just the, all of the surveys. It'll just give me an overview of everything. It'll give me an overview of everything, and it'll tell me, what percentage of the class answered from a biblical perspective or a Christian perspective 100% of the time? It's just not going to tell me who. Okay? No, I, I, I mean, no, I won't get that. It's just going to, it's going to categorize you into postmodern, new age, secular, uh, again, Islamic. And so it'll break it down. It'll break it down into male or female, guys, right? Don't, don't let me down. Okay? It's going to break it down into age demographic, young, up to older. So it's, it's going to, we'll get all of this breakdown in all, I'll get all of this. Okay? And I'll just share it with you next week. Okay? Don't 
use, don't let people outside of the class use the QR code. And mainly I'm just, because I'm, I'm trying to keep everything isolated within the groups that we have. Like I said, I've done it with college students, doing it with you. I plan on doing it with, with some other groups that I'll be teaching next semester. Um, so I can just com compare all of the data. And so I'm trying to keep that as pure as possible. Amy. I'm like, well, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what, there's going to be a link. Um, I've got it up here on, on the PowerPoint that's coming up. Or she can come by and she can scan the QR code. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we can, we can do that. I'm just, like I said, I'm just trying to keep it just for research purposes so I can look at it and we can hopefully kind of isolate things and look and see what groups are, and where we need help. Okay, she, yeah, cause I saw her name on the, on the roll, yeah. That's a secular worldview, by the way. I'm just saying. Okay. All right. And so this, this is how it'll break down. It'll break down new spirituality, postmodern, Marxist. I left that one out. Secularist, Islamic, and Christian. And so you could end up 100% Christian or you could end up 100% secularist. I hope not. Okay? Now I'm going to tell you, I'm not telling you what the last question is, but if you struggle with the last question, you need to come up and talk to me because we got issues. And you'll know when you get to the last question what I'm talking about. I ain't saying no more. Okay, are you ready? Hey, hang on a second. Does everybody, are we good with QR codes? Help, if, if you see somebody that's struggling, help them. Man, it's just like a bunch of little drones just running around with their cameras. It's just, yeah.